Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Janine. Really excited to share her journey, an incredible one in education technology, and she's doing some incredibly important work in across the world. And so, welcome aboard, Janine. Thank you for having me. So, Janine, we you know was just chatting a couple of weeks ago. We were uh, doing low hay at my place. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, it was just nice to kind of catch up and just talk. And I'm so excited to share some of the experiences that you shared over the dinner party with uh, the world. I guess I mean I'm sure you've shared it with the world multiple times, but this is another opportunity to share it. Yeah, looking forward. Actually, Jeremy is a new father, and he he has this really efficient way of networking or having a social life, getting all of us to sign up to visit his home. So yeah, thank you for having me at your place. Yeah, I think I actually have a lot of people who have been inspired and have copied my spreadsheet. It's basically <laughs> for guys who don't know the innovative way that Janine is talking about. Is I have a spreadsheet, and I say, okay, the maximum number of dinner guests is eight people, obviously for COVID restrictions in Singapore, but also because it's probably the optimal size for a dinner party, right? And I just everybody say like, just put your name in and the dish you're bringing, whenever it is. Yeah, exactly. And I think Jeremy and I we both shared the obsession of how to be efficient. So that's definitely one great efficiency tip. Uh, I would, I think everybody should know. Yeah, and it's funny because I'm booked up all the way to July actually, and I had to open up the August slot. And I was just like, I feel like <laughs> <laughs> this is what a nightclub. You know, I love it. The longer the line, the hotter it is for dinner with uh, Jeremy's. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, Janine, you know you've had such an interesting journey from Southeast Asia to Europe and back again. So, tell us about Janine, her professional journey from university till today. So, my journey is a little bit bizarre, I think. So, I fell in love with computer science when I was in junior college, right? So, I did computing then. So, eventually, I studied computer engineering as an undergrad. During my undergrad, I started a few companies, inspired by my father. Though my father, he's an entrepreneur too. And at that point, his company wasn't doing so well. So when I was graduating, my mom said, no way you're going to be an entrepreneur. You have to go and look for a job. So looking for, for a job I did, my first interview was with this film that's uh, the biggest competitor of Accenture in France, Seria. And the interviewer asked me, right, this job is in France. Is that okay for you? And at that point, I didn't speak French. I have never been to Europe. I have not asked my mom, but I already asked. You know, when can I sign? Right? I was 22, so not having a lot of a sense of danger or or risk or whatsoever. But I thought that would be really fun. So I started my journey as a computer engineer in Paris for and did that for a year and a half.、Uh, fell in love with traveling because everybody. I mean, who who wouldn't right when you are living in in, in Europe when you're 22? So, then following that, I pivoted into hospitality. The, I guess the most geeky part of hospitality, where we use data to、uh, we study data to determine top line strategies. So this field called revenue management. So from France, I moved to Thailand and did that for a year and a half. I joined their Starwood Group right currently in Marriott. 
So after a year and a half in Thailand, I was moved to the Maldives to look after the two top Ibiza generating hotels in Asia Pacific. So I was there when I was 26 as complex director of revenue. So one of the questions actually that Jeremy uh, put up is, where do I get started in my leadership journey, right? So I had a leadership role in Thailand, but I felt in the Maldives it was the most challenging because the year that I got there, there was political turmoil. They just overthrew the dictator of about 30 years. And so there was some behaving down the streets from me. The stories I have not told my mom. And there were almost no labor laws in the Maldives where so people were having contracts of three years with no days off and things like that. And it was in a very male-dominated place where the team has hundreds of people, but only 10 women, for example. So that was really fun. So about a year and a half in the Maldives, then I uh, moved on to support Asia Pacific hotels for a year and a half. And eventually, um, based out of the headquarters in Connecticut, supporting global hotels. And so then I got to a point where I started asking myself, what do I want to do next? Because I look at my boss's job, I wasn't particularly motivated. And I thought I wanted to be a general manager of hotels. So that was when I have requested to start on that career track. And because I had to pick a hotel to to train out of, so I picked to go to Jakarta. So yeah, and so that's how I ended up in Indonesia. As I was going through my journey there, I bumped into our common friend, uh, Jeremy and myself, so Ping. So Ping asked me two pivotal questions. The first question is, why are you working so hard for? And the second question is, what is your purpose in life? And for the people who know Ping, he likes to ask this sort of uh, hard questions, right? As an Asian kid, and maybe some of you would identify. We work hard and we are so focused really to make our parents proud, right? To almost make them feel like their investment in us paid off in a certain sense. And that's why in my career I have been very, very focused in how do I get to the next step? How do I how do I grow? How do I get an advancement, right? Now in terms of what's my purpose in life and so I saw long and hard and I realized that most of my career has been well making rich people much richer for the lack of a better word and so I thought well I could do a lot more with my life and that's how I I ended up starting self-education with paying him being so persuasive. Awesome. One interesting thing that you did was that you didn't tell your parents that they would be hitting down the street so uh, I think that's definitely something that you only share with the world now. So. <laughs> My parents are not on Clubhouse. <laughs> or on podcasts. We also have to make sure I email that to them. And for those who don't know, obviously, her co-founder is Peng, who happens to be the uh, managing director for Monk's Hill Ventures, which also happens to be my boss, actually, which is one of the leading Southeast Asia VCs. So it's a really small world. And I'm glad we got it caught up actually separately before we even knew this mutual connection happened. Absolutely. Yeah. So Janine, tell us more, like, I guess the part that always boggles my mind is like, you've always had such a huge wanderlust, right? To being in France, to being in the Maldives and everything. Like, what, what started it? I think what started it is this strong sense of curiosity. 
I have always been a very curious person. So I, if there's anything that I don't know, I would love to dig up and learn more. And so I find learning and, and just visiting different countries, not only just as a tourist, but working there. So that includes the times where I was supporting Asia Pacific hotels or global hotels. Those three and a half years, right, I was living out of my suitcase. I was traveling three weeks out of four. I was traveling over half a million miles a year. And every time I go into a new country, I get to work with the team and really immerse in the culture. And my colleagues would take me out to their local hangout places and I would ask all sorts of questions just to learn more. I think I just have this, I can't really quite control it. I'm just too curious and I, I enjoy learning a lot. So I guess, but but wasn't it scary? Like say like, I'm going to go to France. Like, can you take us? How did you decide that you want to go to France, I guess? It wasn't scary. <laughs> I guess you I would I wasn't thinking so much. I was just curious and so just, you know what, let's go, right? And I grew up in Singapore, so I don't really have this sense of danger until I started living in other countries, right? And then I started to get to know, hey, uh, certain areas you might not want to go out uh, late at night or, and that kind of sense of um, knowing how to protect myself really grew over a period of time, if that makes sense. But I think now I have a much better sense of, of what is okay, what's, what's not, and what, when to do what. I mean, I was in Sri Lanka at right before elections where Tamil tigers were really active. <laughs> and when I got into the airport, then I realized, oh, there's something strange because there were military with guns everywhere. And, you know, you can't even get picked up right at the airport. You need to go onto this bus uh, right outside before you could be picked up. And then as you were driving along, you see military folks around. I guess, you know, go just going through all those and including the, uh, when I was in Thailand, there was airport closure, big protest, uh, the, about the same size of the protest that we have right now, but be before. And uh, all those different experiences really, I feel, helped me grow and help. And I enjoy problem solving. So I see all these things as an interesting problem to solve and how do I navigate and remain safe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's interesting because I think you're reminding me, actually, yeah, I think... One of the benefits of growing up in Singapore for so many folks is like, there's such a huge sense of security. There's no fear, right? And so, so looking back, we're like, weren't you scared? And then now in retrospect, you're like, no, at that time, no, there was nothing. You didn't know that you could be scared. <laughs> and you didn't even know what home, you, you can't be scared about things you don't know, right? One of my friends got robbed at gunpoint, eh, not gunpoint, a knife point really early in the RER in, in Paris. It was like such a shock of his life, but we learned. I think that could be like the slogan for like founders who are just like, you can't be scared of about what you don't know. <laughs> I think so. I think so. If people knew how crazy entrepreneurship actually is, apart from the glamour and all the stardom around it, maybe a lot less people would be entrepreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> The bit is that I laugh because it's exactly how I feel like if I'd known about how much stress and how much pain I would go through over my past two startups, I want to believe that I would choose to do it maybe, but but, <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely would have think I wouldn't have jumped in so enthusiastically and so quickly. It doesn't make sense, right? And I think that's 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 the truth of matter there, right? Which is you talk about your father was a founder. Your mom didn't want you to be a founder because they knew what it would meant and what it would cost you, right? 
and then you still chose to do so, right? Could you share a little bit more about that? So I grew up seeing my father wake up like 6 a.m. every day and finishing his work at 12 midnight. <laughs> and I, over the weekend, we would play per se in his office. So, and I really admire him, right? I admire his discipline, his grit, right, to build his company. So I don't know what it is, but I feel like I want to be able to decide my destiny and drive my own destiny rather than being in a part of a much bigger organization. So perhaps this desire to be in control and to decide my own destiny is a big driver for me. I don't know about you, Jeremy. There's some similarity. I mean, my grandfather was, you could call him an entrepreneur today, but he saved up his money from working on a plantation and then put it together to start a small little provision shop. I think he'll be a, a founder in... I don't know if today he wouldn't be under Forbes, <laughs> 30 under 30 for setting up a provision shop. I, I don't think he would be like raising VC funding for the fact that he imported a few orange saplings, right? From China to Singapore uh, and Malaya to get started. But the truth is, if he didn't make that decision to build a business on his own, I don't think he wouldn't have been able to make enough money to send my father for an education, uh, university education, and then... The truth is my father's university education and his career allowed me to benefit so much, right? And have a great privilege to have a world-class education in that sense, but also like build companies in the same vein. And I think those stories about that, it's kind of crazy because, you know, it's like my grandfather, my father and I have all been founders at some point in time. And it's both inspiring, but then also in looking back, I now have a baby daughter and I have high hopes for her. But I'm wondering to myself, is this curse? <laughs> <laughs> continue of like four generations of people trying to build stuff. The provision shop uh, of your grandfather might not, in, in today's term, might seem not significant to be, be in Forbes, right? But during that time when Singapore was in the very beginning, right? I'm sure the difficulty of building their business at that point is also very, very difficult. I mean, funny fact is that my grandfather is also an entrepreneur. <laughs> so I, I don't know whether it's a curse or not. Yeah. <laughs> Were there any funny stories you heard? I mean, obviously, that's a good story, right? So you like grew up in the office on the weekends and stuff like that. Any interesting stories about that time watching your dad work and what you took away from it? Or maybe like, also, now we're looking at it is like, how did you look at him as a child about what he was doing? And now that you're older and pretty much pretty getting close to his age, right? When you were, when you were a kid, right? Like, could you like compare and contrast like how you felt as a kid about what he was doing versus now today, like you have a chance to reflect on your memories of what he was doing. So, so I have not really shared this before, right? And I'm not sure how you guys are going to look at my father after this. <laughs> So over the weekends, like Sunday, right, my sister and I will almost make a, uh, so my, my father's uh, company is doing ERP uh, software. So my sister and I would be per se playing and my father is so brilliant. He sold it to us as playing, playing in his office by cleaning up and vacuuming his office and clearing the bins. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. And, and to us, it feels fun. And we are so happy to help out. And after which we get to have ice cream. But I guess maybe some people look at it as child labor, but we definitely enjoyed that experience. And I remembered um, when my father's uh, company took off, he wanted to make sure that, and I think somebody mentioned to my dad that I could be spoiled. So 
Uh, <laughs> so he he made me do like brush handing out brochures during his road shows and things like that as well, just to teach me about the value of money. Yeah, that's amazing. I think you you, you made me laugh. I cry because I was just like, yeah, that sounds like that sounds a good. I mean, I never had to do that specifically, but I was like, that's a good trick maybe for my daughter. Oh, like really? soon in like five to ten years, I can like you know get her to help me clean you know <laughs> the office. Yeah. Although after uh, like when I was doing computing uh, when I was seventeen, eighteen, right, and so I did, so I knew how to code, so I did some prototypes for my father's uh, clients. So that was fun. <laughs> you know, that's actually a funny story because that's exactly what happened to me. So as a teenager, I guess, one of the things that I did in retrospect was I was like, he needed a company logo. And so I made one for him on Photoshop because, you know, I was like the geeky <laughs> one in the computer. I mean, he had bought me a computer, but obviously I took to it. And then I was like doing Photoshop. I was doing a lot of like website coding and design. So I made the, his logo and he actually turned out it was funny because eventually the, the company went on and then they got a designer to like professionalize my, <laughs> <laughs> my logo. So he was like, if you look at my logo retrospect, I was like, wow, this is a guy really working on Photoshop. Like basic, I don't know. Please show us eventually. <laughs> the, one day, one day, I guess. And then they made it much nicer looking, cleaner font and all these other stuff. Anyway, so... Uh, yeah, so lots of fun stories where, uh, yeah, in, in retrospect, I'm like, yeah, wow, I, I guess that kind of makes sense. Maybe one day I'll teach my, when I do VR or something, my kid is going to like help me create a VR logo or something in the future, you know? My grandfather was a, a Chinese physician, so he had his own clinic and his own practice, right, uh, with uh, his herbs and all those things. So um, my one of my first projects that I did, like a bigger scale one, was to help him computerize his customer database. <laughs> I did that for my A-levels project work. Wow, that's amazing. That's, <laughs> I could, I, that sounds like another one hour where I could go into that one experience. But I, I guess, is that where you picked up your joy for like, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you went in as an engineer, right? And then eventually became a founder. So, and in the hospitality world. So walk me through like, how did you decide to, or how did you stream into engineering? And, you know, obviously as a female engineer as well. I think really my dad played a very big part in influencing me. So he's the, I, I don't know how familiar is the audience with Asian families, right? So my dad is the oldest son and obviously he's expected to have boys. However, he got me and my sister, both girls. So in the end, he brought us up almost like gender neutral, almost like boys. So we grew up, uh, I had zero bubby doors, zero girly things, and just fell in love with building things, creating things, making things on our own. And that eventually evolved into a passion for computing. What was your first computer or your first uh, touch? Do you remember anything about it? I think it's the Windows 3.1.1 that there's this DOS version, right? And the, the, you know, the one with the very big floppy, floppy disk. Windows, that's actually much earlier than me, actually, by one or two generations, actually. Wow. What was it like? What were you doing? Were you just like playing around with it? Was he like sitting next to you and showing how it worked or? Yeah, I was playing around with it. And um, once I remember it, my first kind of encounter with coding was that my my dad was, I was learning prime numbers in school. I, I can't remember how old I was. 
And my dad challenged me to list down all the prime numbers from one to a hundred or something. So I was like busy trying to work it out. And then he wrote something on the computer and ran it and got all the prime numbers. I was so upset. So I really wanted to know how he could do something so quickly because I felt I could do it quickly, but he he was much faster than me. So that was kind of like my first memory of it. No, I love it. I think it's so amazing when a father inspires a kid around something that he loves, in this case, coding, right? And it's interesting how it ripples on. You know, tell me more. So you became an you know engineer, you started doing, and when did you decide to deepen it? Because you started coding, right? Like, when did you decide to deepen it and say like, okay, I want to make this, like, I want to study this? Yeah. I took computing as a subject, right, when I was in junior college. So that was 16. And my love for it grew because... Well, first, I love mathematics, and it seems to be something quite similar to algebra and calculus, right? And I guess second thing is that I was good at it. So I managed to top my school for computing and eventually also represented my school for National Olympiad Informatics kind of uh, competitions. So I think if you are good at something and then you feel in a zone when you're doing it, you just feel pulled to it uh, naturally. At that point, I'm quite old, right? So at that point, there were only two two girls in this in my class. So that was really fun to beat the boys, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so it's quite superficial at that point. Wow, that's that's you know I totally get it. I reminds me of like my school eventually converted to have, have both genders, but before there was an all boys school, and so. What I heard from my folks, I think a previous guest, Ricky Williamto, you can hear him on the JeremyAll.com podcast soon. But he was saying like, all the ladies got totally spoiled by the whole class, right? <laughs> and then, and I fast forward, like for myself personally, I was in the military unit. I was like, our unit actually was, of the whole school, my section was like the only person being trained by a female military commander in the whole school, right? She was, was like a whole base. Uh, I think there's other two other female recruits in a separate division, but and I think it was just a really interesting dynamic where it was like the generation was like totally out of whack, right? But then so everybody would be like kind of jealous. You'd be like, oh wow, you know, like you're being led by her, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, and it was funny because I think there's a few moments where there's a lot of really macho stuff. In retrospect, totally ridiculous. And so she would just play along with all this macho stuff in the military, but she always have that like twinkle in her eye. Tell us one macho stuff. I can't remember. It was like we had to like in the military, I think it was like, I think it was something about like discipline. So people were like running, you know, the guys were like shouting, like, you got to toughen up and time to clean and, you know, very like very macho stuff about obeying the orders and cleaning and stuff. And then she was walking around and she was just like, you could tell that she was just very amused by the very exaggerated language. And so our unit was just like, okay, let's just do it, right? We didn't have to be like motivated by this like Pacific Rim Independence Day speech about how cleaning saves lives, which saves the country, you know? <laughs> it was just so, you know, like, like, you know, which saves our women and family members. You know, it was just like totally overblown macho side. And then there was this very like, yeah, we're just doing it. Anyway, we could tell that she was just amused by the whole like, process. Anyway. Yeah. We we need you we need you guys to feel like a man to clean. Is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need to be a man to clean or something. It was just super like donkulous uh, in retrospect, and uh, was, I was glad to hear her see her point that out with her eyes. Yeah, that, that's the reason why Mister Clean is Mister Clean, just so that the man will clean. 
that's that's a good point. Is I saw this a uh, bottle of like facial cleanser in the states. I think it was at Whole Foods, and it was like facial wash, but it was in the shape of a whiskey flask. Right, it looked exactly like a whiskey flask, but it was like face wash, and I was like. Whoa, do you really have to make it so manly for men to use facial wash? That is so smart. That's so smart because a lot of the men that I know just use one product from head to toe, right? Yeah, exactly. So it just feels really manly. And the other part of me was like, oh, this would be a fun thing to buy and try. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, because it was all like whiskey, you know, it, it kind of works. It kind of works, right? It was like, it'll be a fun gift in my head. I was like, I can try it. Then if I like it, I can give it as a gift, gag gift, right? You know, so it kind of works. Anyway, Janine, back to you. <laughs> so, you know, obviously you went off and you went to France and you became an engineer there. And then after that, that became kind of like part of your you know, global journey, right? Across the Maldives and the States and Jakarta. What was it like working, you know, having your first job in France? I have to say my, my Singaporean education, right? And, and I think it's also similar in other Asian countries from my experience is that we're not really taught to speak up or how to manage conflicts or even how to disagree with people or just speak my own mind. So when I first arrived in France as an, an engineer trained in Singapore, I didn't know how to speak up for myself. I didn't, I mean, my colleagues were all like talking over me, etc. right? So it was definitely really challenging. And on top of that, I had the language barrier. So it was, I have to admit that it, it was really tough at the start. So I was really drilling myself every night to learn the language so that I could be up to speed as fast as possible. And on the other side, I needed to be able to handle the the communication side and getting just getting over myself, right? And, and speaking out. I, this is something that uh, at the beginning of my career, I definitely found challenging, yeah. Yeah, on top of that, I mean, there are small things like sitting on the <laughs> toilet and my feet not being able to touch the ground, things like that. that those are small things. Wow, that's a detail I <laughs> never thought about. That's <laughs> Too much information. That's actually a fun fact. Uh, I never knew that. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> How was your French? Did you know French going in or were you like, did you learn it on the ground or? So I learned it in the ground. So <laughs> yeah, that's a bit suicidal, but I, I'm, I'm so glad that I'm fluent right now. But you know what? At, communication has been a very big issue for engineers. And I don't know how many en engineers are there in this audience, right? And I remembered in school, we had this one module that's called Effective Engineer, Effective Communications for Engineers, just because, you know, engineers are so bad at it. We prefer to look at our computers than speak. And I remember my first class, we had to go around introducing ourselves. And there's this classmate of mine who just wrote his name down in a paper and pointed to it. <laughs> yeah, so that's how bad it is. Wow, that's really interesting. And so along the way, during this time while you were, you know, being a software engineer in France, you were also kind of like doing some entrepreneurial activity on the side as well, right? So, so how, how does that work? <laughs> it is motivated by the, by me wanting to travel as much and see as much of Europe as possible. So it was tough. I was, because in school I started this I started a few things, right? And one thing that got carried on was this vending machine company. <laughs> so uh, when I took up the job in France, I continued to manage it. But we have built 
I mean, you know, as computer engineers, we build up a system where we manage the inventory, uh, where we could also figure out how do we do some dynamic pricing as well, depending on um, demand. So I would say that it is important to first hire the right person because it's remote. We are managing it remotely, right? So the person in Singapore needs to be somebody that we trust. And then second thing is to have systems in place to make sure that everything runs well. I guess it's not very sexy thing. It's just pretty fundamental things that maybe some companies don't focus on. I think what's interesting is that you started it while you were still in university, I believe. And then you were running this vending machine and you continued running it while you were in France, right? So so here you are, Singaporean lady who's now learned computer engineering. You start up a vending machine in Singapore. Then you take on a computer engineering role in France without knowing any French. And you're still running this vending machine company in Singapore. So what was that like doing that dual function of being both an employee as a computer engineer in France in a new country with a new language, as well as running a company? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I mean, I have no idea how I did it, but yeah, on high, it's always hindsight, right? So hindsight is just have to be really disciplined in, in, in managing your time. And I remember when we first started that business, we were still in school and we went to the estate office and asked, is it okay if we place the a machine outside our electro theater because the existing machine did not bend what we wanted. So the uncle, I mean, the estate uh, office officer looked at us like an uncle, uncle. So he said, okay, sure, you know, try it. And that company grew to over 30 machines across Singapore. And then we had contracts from with Maple Tree, Capital Land, etc. So, yeah, we even had a, a, a machines in Parliament House as well. We served the MPs. <laughs> so it was, it was a very fun journey and it grew. And uh, we have done it in such a way that it can kind of run on its own. However, of course, we still need a very trustworthy person on the ground. So... Yeah, but eventually we sold it. And yeah, it's just a interesting adventure, I would say. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a great first adventure to have. And so I think then this is where the interesting part comes in, right? So you've been a computer engineer, you love coding, and then you're like, I want to join Starwood, right? Or Marriott, right? So why did you shift? I mean, I guess in terms of industry from engineering, for example, or the tech to the Marriott the hospitality? So, well, when I did the switch, my mom again kicked out a big fuss, right? Uh, she she thought, well, you, are you giving up your engineering role to carry suitcases? I think unknown to many people, at the back end of hospitality, uh, apart from the people who check you in and do reservations and stuff, but there are people who do data modeling and forecasting and statistics on consumer behaviors, price elasticity, comset reaction. Etc. Etc. So, and I honestly I didn't know about that field until I researched into hospitality. I guess part of my kind of life motto is also to have fun, right? And I had so so much fun traveling that I just felt myself drawn to hospitality. And of course, I was also quite young, right? So. And when I researched into hospitality, I couldn't see myself. I'm a, a big introvert, so I couldn't see myself uh, interacting with guests. But so then, what else can I do? So then, I I, I researched and found this field, uh, revenue management. So what I did was I did a few kind of courses on it, and really networked to find somebody who would support me 
into the organization. And I was really lucky to find my first mentor, uh, Paul Suji. I still remember him because he was leading the Indochina region. And uh, he was, and, and at that point, it was not conventional to hire anybody outside the industry to go, to go in. And uh, he took the risk on me and, yeah, and placed me directly at a managerial position. So I was, I, I feel really grateful to, to be given that opportunity. So I was, yeah, really working over and above what was needed of me. And quickly over a year, I topped the region. And that's how I got placed in the Maldives. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. This guy sounds like an amazing person. Do you have any good stories about how he mentored you or gave you feedback? That's a good one. I think above everything, he really took the time and effort to spend time with me. And, and I was really young, right? And everybody else are at least 10 or 15 years above my age. And so to get my point across was hard. So uh, for those of who, you who don't know, right, beverage management, the field, we look at data and then we suggest what strategy we should take. And then you have to go convince the general manager, the director of sales and marketing, the, the director of FMB, et cetera, on, for, on adopting your strategy, right? And, and the biggest pushback usually comes from the sales and marketing side. And you probably have uh, experienced this in your, maybe in your, in your company. So you want to sell at this rate and you think that this rate uh, at to this segment, you already done the homework and so on. And you think this is the right rate to sell. And then your sales and marketing person might say, oh, that's too high. I can't sell it. Or, you know, blah, 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 right? And all the reasons and excuses that their target should be lower, you know, <laughs> as salespeople do. And so, and they are very vocal and, and outspoken and very eloquent, right? Where, yeah, I was still honing my skills, I would say, <laughs> fresh out of being an engineer. So, so Paul really spent time in helping me gain confidence in myself and supporting the points that I put out and things like that. So, yeah, I guess my self-confidence really built up slowly, slowly across over time during, during that period. You spent eight years at Starwood, right? Uh Tell us more about it. So you did so many different roles, right? You were like revenue manager, then you became the Maldives, then you were doing the global stack, and then you were working in the Indonesian market. Walk us through, like, were you like, I like this, so I'm going to keep going? Or was it like, I'm learning a lot here, so I want to keep going? Like, what was the drive to stay eight years? Because that feels like a long time for many folks, right? Yeah, yeah, it does feel like a long time. However, it didn't feel so long because I was one and a half years in Thailand, right? To be precise, one year and three months. So it's learning a lot of things about the whole industry and uh, striving to be like the best version. And then after which, going to the Maldives, I was I felt like I was learning a total different thing, right? Because the the, the business in the Maldives were. Firstly, the rates are 10 times usual, usual hotel rates, right? And the clientele and how, how they book and the price elasticity, et cetera, were like so different. So it was, it's so interesting to, if you think about like from the startup perspective, it's like moving from one company to a total different company because the, the market segment was different. The buying pattern was different. The demand was so different. How do you growth hack was different, right? And I mean, moving from there to looking after Asia Pacific, then, then global is like every week I get to work with a completely different market with completely different kind of nuances, right? You have all the way from in Kuwait where there are uh, cartels and government were dictating the rates all the way to like, you know, straight to Macau where you have 4,000 rooms and where the, and the 4,000 rooms were like 
the, the booking window was within a week. So at the start of the week, you almost have zero occupancy and everybody booked last minute versus uh, Seychelles or Maldives where people book uh, six to eight months out. The, the buying patterns and there, there are so many, just so many things to learn and so many different kind of uh, markets, culture, even um, or when we were when we were operating in, I mean, when I was uh, working in India, where and it was at that point where, uh, no matter what rate you set, tell the the reservation agents to sell, they would still quote like a rate that's three times higher and then bargain with the <laughs> with the with the booker downwards, right? So different nuances was yeah, it was just really interesting for 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 me. So it didn't it really didn't feel so long and and it, I would have probably been been bored if I didn't have a role change every year and a half or so. That's a really interesting insight where it does feel like eight years, but actually felt like very exciting to you for each rotation that you did across the different markets and projects and locations that you actually at. Question then is, okay, so is an obvious jump from engineering then to the revenue management side in hospitality. And then you make one more shift in 2015, right? You finally leave the Marriott Starwood home family and you decide to build Solve Education. So what happened here? Yeah, so it's definitely um, not a push factor because I had an organization that supported my growth and almost gave me anything I wanted. I had very supportive mentors in, in Starwood, right? So but it's more of the desire to do more with my life. So hanging out with Ping made me realize so many things has changed in the tech space since I left, right? And also there are like a lot of interesting problems that has been solved at skill and can and and we're wondering can we use some of those to solve the the challenges that humanity are facing and this is going to sound very engineering right very very logical but if you look at all the sdgs that the un has right most of them you need to solve you need to solve a mindset change which is very difficult. You need to move what we call atoms. You need to move physical products, right? For example, if you want to end hunger, you need to make sure that you set up a, a, a logistic kind of network to solve it, etc. So there only one that can be solved by moving bytes, right? It's really education. So therefore, we felt, hey, this might be an SDG that we can contribute best to. So that's kind of like how we ended up starting self-education together. Right. But like, take us to the room, right? If there was a room. Was it like, were you on sabbatical already or or were you at, still an employee when the concept of self-education came about? Yeah. So I would say I'm still an employee when self-education, the concept of self-education came about. In fact, Ping has talked about it for a while already because he was, uh, I think he was, to speak at an African innovation forum and uh, their topic particularly was can Africa skip over the industrialization phase and go direct to the knowledge economy, right? And the discussion went towards in order to create knowledge, you need education, right? And that's where the people in the in the room got st- got kind of stuck, right? Because education is still a big challenge in Africa. So the advice that was given at that point was, in order to solve this, like within our lifetime, we need to try to solve this without touching schools, without touching 
teachers and without touching governments. Because once you have more and more um, people that you need to convince or change the mindset, right, then it will stretch out the not that not to say it's impossible just that it will stretch out the time the time frame so that's kind of how he first got started and he started to think about it so how Ping and I became good friends was that you know at 9 p.m who are still in the office working and have not had dinner will be me and him so <laughs> that's how we started to hang out and talk a lot more about these things and my my office at that point or the area that I, I was hanging out in is uh, Plaza Indonesia right so and uh it's perhaps one of the most kind of uh, expensive malls in Jakarta. And right next to it is Kepung Kacang, which is a uh, slum area. So in Plaza Nature, you have uh, almost every lady with a Hermes bag. Every kid has two nannies, etc. Right, But right across the street, you have um, street kids selling streets and cigarettes and things like that on the street. So that, that was a very stock kind of difference and and definitely impacted us both so yeah so we got start, started thinking about that but to be honest I left first to explore what's happening in the tech space so uh, the last day I, w- I was with hospitality the f- next day uh at I think 7 a.m I was already at Ping's lobby and I was shadowing him for a while and it took being exposed to the tech space before um, I jumped with my two feet into self-education that's amazing and Yes, for those who don't know what self-education is, could you share a little bit about like what your approach is and how you intend to make it different? So the main problem that we are trying to solve is this, and, and the statistics are very much pre-COVID because uh, we still don't know the final numbers after COVID, right? But pre-COVID, there are 263 million children and youth who do not go to school. And for this this, this demographic, this children and youth, they will not be able to go to school no matter how many schools we build or how many teachers we train because they are already, because of economic reasons, they're already starting to work, cultural reasons. Some of them are really young mothers and so on, or geographic reasons, etc. right? Political reasons. So how do we bring the schools to them was the question that we asked ourselves. So we saw a very interesting kind of trend where mobile phones becoming more and more affordable. In fact, at that point, Android phones were dropping 20% year on year, right? So the penetration to the bottom of the pyramid was in, was increasing at an exponential rate. So then we asked ourselves, hey, can we teach through mobile devices? Well, through mobile devices, we are just solving one part of the problem, which is access. But that's actually a bigger part of the problem, which is effectiveness, right? And today's education may not be effective, relevant, or engaging. And that's why even if we take the education that we have today and just put it to the bottom of the pyramid, and if at the end of the day, people can't get a job or don't learn anything, then that will not change a single thing for them, right? In fact, according to OECD, 16% of our youth globally are not in employment, education, or training, right? So so this really speaks to, and this is not only in developing countries, but also in more developed countries like France, Netherlands, etc. So with that, that, therefore, we ask ourselves then, what do we teach, right? So we focus on the fundamentals of teaching people how to learn and the building blocks of how to learn. There's the, hard, the, there's the soft skills perspective, a component, and there's a hard skills component, right? Soft skills being to learn your uh, literacy in English and math, 
because with those two blocks, you can learn anything that you want or pick up other lang- other other skills like science, computing, etc. Right, but those are the building blocks. But the the soft skills actually is the is a is a bigger part of it, right? So how do we train people to have the confidence to have the grit to be able to learn on their own. So, so that's a very interesting uh, problem to solve. And we are uh, solving that through tech. So we have different customer, we're testing different customer facing platforms. So we have a game app, which supports people to learn offline as well, because you download it, you don't, don't need internet and so on. And we use game components and mechanics to motivate people to learn more and more. We know that uh, EdTech has a very low completion rate or engagement rate, right? And I think this is a well-known statistics, right? So we are definitely testing other extrinsic motivation factors to influence and ignite the passion for learning. So we have that game map, but we also have a, a chat teacher that uh, that fits the youth demographic more um, because, you know, they have low-end phones. They have maybe access to spotty internet, but they don't have a lot of space in their phone or their phone very uh, low specs. And also we have to consider the digital literacy component side of things. right? So that worked out fairly well for the youth demographic. Yeah, it's definitely interesting because you've also not only been able to build that out across Indonesia, but also Nigeria as well. So it's an interesting mark attraction that you've managed to prove out. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So yeah, Nigeria is a very interesting, it's still a very interesting um, market, right? Um, so their population size is quite similar to Indonesia. And Nigeria has two two sides of it, right? There's the North Nigerian and the South Nigerians. And North the, the South are, I guess, they're economically uh, small, vibrant. And uh, many young Nigerians actually are fairly well educated, but sadly, because of politics and so on, the youth unemployment rate rate is very, very high. And on the north is a different kind of a problem because of terrorist acts and so on. So and attacks in schools, etc. So out of school children and youth um, numbers are very, very high on the north. So yeah, looking at Nigeria as a whole country is is maybe misleading. You're Southeast Asian, but you've not only built a career across Europe, but across the frontier markets in via technology approach, right? Which is a relatively, I'll say, well, it's a rare combination, I would say, full stop for anybody, right? And, you know, you did that with your own experience and your own two feet. I'm so curious about one thing here, though, is this like, when you look at that, obviously, education, it's a big problem to solve, right? And then you see so many people... Well, Fortnite is also doing games. Uh, I don't think it's, well, it's educational in the sense of like as a adjacent outcome, I guess. Uh, Minecraft does teach as well through you know, math and basic material. Civilization teaches it through history. So I guess to some extent, they're almost similar, but adjacent is like, okay, like why education, which I get, why games, second, and why nonprofit, three. Wow, that's a lot of questions. I will first maybe answer why nonprofit. Uh, on top of soft education, I'm also part of Digital for Development Committee in Asian Development Bank, whose focus is to elevate poverty. So why nonprofit? Because this question is asked really often. So most people understand government as conservative, myself included. Right. So when I was trying to build, and, and when Ping and myself was starting up, we 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 were trying to not not 
kind of engage too much with governments, right? However, um, now I see it from the back end, right? So from uh, being part of Asian Development Bank, you know, government actually need to be conservative because they are acting for the people, right? So every decision that they make actually do impact millions. And that's so it's natural for them to be conservative and they, they should be very careful about spending public resources and the impact of their, their, their decisions. Now, that's on one hand, government's conservative. On the other hand, SDGs are problems that has never been solved before. So when things have never been solved before, the solutions is likely to be things that have never been done before. So if you look at one side, the government needing to only do try and tested stuff, conservative, and then this side trying to solve problems that has never been solved before, well, somebody has to take the risk, right? So the person that could take the risk, I guess, with bigger risk appetite would be startups or NGOs. Then the question is, well, why not a for-profit NGO? So nine out of 10 startups fail, right? So focus really uh, needs to be on surviving, then thriving, right? Focusing on profits. So uh, we all know here that profit uh, focus is key to be successful. And so if we were to be a for-profit, we needed to focus on profits. But then we might lose sight about our mission and impact. So hence, we decide... Yeah, right at the start to set it up as an NGO so that we don't need to be put in a place where we needed to kind of uh, choose between focusing on profit or um, the impact. So we are very clear in our organization, impact first. So yeah, so that's why we ended up as an NGO. <laughs> this, I mean, I get this question a lot of time because we work on AI, we work in NLP for education, right? And those are very attractive um, for-profit components. So that's the first question. And then I think the second question, why education? So I think that no matter how, where you are born, how you are born, right? Having access to quality education or effective education or what they refer to as equitable education is the true equalizer. And it really helps the whole world, you know, move forward. And if you look at the different SDGs, not only just the education part, right? You almost can't solve climate change if people that you're trying to influence did not understand science, right? You can't solve uh, nutrition without people understanding what food is about, etc. You can't solve radicalization, etc. without solving education first. So we see education as kind of like a, a catalyzer for, to solve all the other problems as well. So if that makes sense. Amazing. I mean, I think the reason why a lot of people ask about the nonprofit side as well is because your co-founder is Peng, right? Who's one of the top VCs in Southeast Asia, yes. right? So here's yes. this guy investing in education tech startups with millions of dollars <laughs> across the region. Uh, and he's a successful founder at Match in Silicon Valley. I think his what total revenues all the companies he's helped found is like over a billion dollars annually. And then He's co-founding a nonprofit with you, right? You know, so I think people have that natural scratch your head moment with you. Absolutely, but you know, Hey is a super um, focused person, right? So I think that's really, really why um, Solve is set up as a nonprofit is, and it's not a superficial nonprofit. I mean, or social enterprise, right? Because I know that there are many impact investors out there, but where on paper they focus on impact, but every 
every month, they expect the PL, the financial returns, etc. And they ask very little about the impact. But we just bought meeting yesterday and we drilled on impact numbers. Uh, so how many people are learning, you know, what are the learning outcomes, etc. You know, so yeah, the, I think the focus is quite important to solve such a big problem. And the problem that we're solving are fairly big. So like, it has never been solved before. So so we can't solve this with just part-timing or being, you know, working with volunteers, right? We really need to attract top talents to solve these problems together. Yeah, I'm I'm pushing you so hard because I've been a social enterprise founder myself, right? So and now I'm in technology, I built a technology founder, and now I'm venture capital, right? So I feel like I'm doing the same rounds as you. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I mean, I just wish uh, more talents would come into this sector because we really need top talents. The problems that we are solving are truly complex. Uh, Sadly, the society still don't place value on work that contributes to the the society. For example, teachers not being well paid. um, And and we've seen this in many of our markets. Uh, We know of a very brilliant physics teacher in Indonesia who had to leave teaching to sell going on to sell street food on the streets because his pay wasn't enough to survive. So many times people expect us to work for free. <laughs> yeah, I think that was one frustrating part every time I was working and I was like, whoa, 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 hold up. And my team are regular people who have families who depend on them, right? But yet they chose to work on this mission. So yeah, we really hope to change this kind of uh, mindset of um, NGO. And uh, we want to be kind of like an example of an an NGO that could have exponential um, impact on humanity. Yeah, I think I remember doing this bit of analysis where we were testing... And I can't remember exactly how (laughs) this insight came into my brain. Uh, But basically, like... Way where we boiled down the analysis was was that we were trying to figure out for this catering business whether it should be labeled as a for as a for profit catering business, whether it should be called a non profit or whether it should be called a social enterprise in terms of how obvious the branding was. And the interesting part was that if you called it like a non profit or social enterprise, it was interesting where two things happened, right? The first was people expected the quality to be worse <laughs> than the corporate catering side. So they expected to pay less because they felt the quality was going to be lower as a result. But on a converse on that, they also felt guilty about thinking like that. <laughs> and so they wanted to pay more because it was going to a good cause, right? And so those two impulses, I think, is a huge part of the branding, I think, around calling yourself a nonprofit or a social enterprise that as you see recurs for like, uh, restaurants run by immigrants for job training purposes. I think that's another one, right? I think there's lots of different aspects where choosing to label yourself as a nonprofit or social enterprise does have consequences on the brand and consumer uptake. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because the most common NGOs out there are, there are different levels of problems, right? And there are different approaches, right? So there are the the ones that are solving more direct impact kind of things, like I distribute a food or I yeah, hire immigrants and things like that. And then you have um, NGOs working at more systemic level. How could I change something that would impact millions, right? So I guess there are different aspects and people are more in tune or familiar with the ones that are depending on volunteers, giving free tuition and things like that. So so I think there is also this difference, but uh, and, and we, we definitely want to be one of them to get the word out there to have people, um, you know, be more comfortable or more familiar with 
on NGOs that are trying to solve systemic issues. Well, wrapping up here, you know, this last question before I open up for readers, listeners to ask any questions they may have of you for those who are listening to this whole thing. I guess my last question I have for you is if you could go back 10 years in time, right? Where would you be at that point of time? Tell us who you were 10 years ago and what advice would you give them? Wow, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I would be living out of my suitcase <laughs> to a different continent or different country every week. You're saying what advice I would give myself. <laughs> yeah, classic time travel machine. You, know, you hop out and... It, it, it sounds a bit crazy, but I felt those times really contributed to me as a person. And that's how I learned so much about the different countries and different cultures. So I really wouldn't change too much of what I was doing. However, what I would tell myself is to get started with self-education a lot earlier. Yeah, I definitely want to do that earlier and skip over the hotel GM part of uh, my career. <laughs> <laughs> That's very frank advice, Derek. I, I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Janine. Um, just open up. If anybody wants to raise their hands, feel free to raise your hands and uh, feel free to ask uh, Janine some questions. Hi, Janine. Hi. Hey. One of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really inspiring talk and I was really, I it was really amazing talk. So thank you very much for sharing your story. So <laughs> we will catch up later, but I yes. have one question. So I believe that your organization and your work have been impacted by COVID-19. So I just wonder how it impacted to your organization and your work or your perspective. And will you do it differently in the world after in the world that facing the aftermath of COVID-19? Yeah, thank you, Suin, for this question. I think that there are positive impact as well as negative impact by COVID. Our per se, the, the negative impact to start off is that many of our beneficiaries, when we were starting to, to bring them on board and roll out um, beginning of 2020, right? So eventually they start to be more worried about I mean, well, being worried about COVID is one thing, but actually most of them are worried about the lockdowns because many are belonging to low-income families who mainly fall into the daily wage workers kind of um, segment, right? So our beneficiaries became more worried about dying of hunger <laughs> than dying of COVID, right? Not to sound too morbid. So when you are so worried about putting food on the table, honestly, education becomes secondary. So it was hard to get people to focus on education, which rightfully so, right? We had actually a case where a, a, a mom died of hunger in our, one of our communities. So yeah. <laughs> so what we, what we did from there was that we combined, we took that and we combined a learning with food. So what we did was to run this uh, campaign called Game for Charity, where the people who can afford to donate, donate. And then the uh, so the more well-to-do families donate, and then the middle class, the the ones who can learn, they learn, 
So, and for every 500 stars that you learn from our um, platform, we will send a food package based on the donation to a needy family. So it became a very exciting and fun kind of a community building campaign and uh, program, which uh, eventually got adopted by the East Java government. And following that, right now we're partnering with the Indonesian federal government. So there is definitely negatives, but uh, because my team are so close to the people on the ground, right? So we we, we pivot, uh, we are agile, and uh, we always ask ourselves, what can we do for the community? Amazing. You are always a source of inspiration. <laughs> Jenny. You Thank are you inspiring, very much. you know, Suin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So I'm looking forward to see your um, continuous effort and let's catch up later. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Suin. Hope you are fine. Awesome. Well, Janine, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. I, I think it's just, I just want to say like, I was just blown away by your journey as a kid <laughs> to becoming a female engineer, to dropping yourself into France without knowing the language as an engineer, to working all across the world, hospitality, while running a couple of businesses along the side, and then eventually tackling one of the most important problems of our time, right, which is education and frontier markets right and doing this not just uh from a non-profit perspective but also doing this from a technology first perspective which is so difficult so hard and so worth doing honestly yeah so i guess thank you so much for having me and i look forward to connecting with anybody who is passionate about solving world problems education particularly education but any other world problems please drop me a note I think you can easily find me in LinkedIn, Facebook, etc. And uh, yeah, I hope that this helps and um, in your entrepreneurial journey that you find your circle of support, that you have peers around supporting you and um, good mentors as well. Those you will definitely need. Yeah, and all the best. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>